Uh, it's just, I feel like I'm back home. This is my home in the north, amen? And uh, so I feel so blessed to be here. It's uh, just, uh, I think we've been coming here over 20 years. I've seen many of you grow up. Some of you have gotten older like I have. And uh, so uh, I'm just so thankful. I did want to say, and I said this yesterday, but I want to say this morning too, I'm so thankful for your uh, continued support of our ministry and uh, everything that Debbie and I do in ministry, whether it's counseling, whether it's uh, preaching in churches, doing seminars, going on the mission field and training pastors, whatever that is, you are part of that. And uh, so we are so thankful that you pardoned with us and have pardoned with us for so many years uh, to help us do what God has called us to do. We had a great time here this weekend uh, and this morning, I'm looking, really looking forward to what God is going to do through His Word. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and I know on the PowerPoint it says to start at verse 8, but I'm going to start at verse 1. So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 13. And as you turn to this passage in the Word of God, we need to be reminded it's only in the Word of God that we get the true story of the world. Amen. And uh, thank God that we can get a true story of the world. And we do find that in the Word of God. And it is a living Word to us. So God is speaking to us through His Word, through His sovereign and His perfect Word. Genesis chapter 3, and I'll start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This morning as we look in the Word of God, let's pray for His blessing. As you're sitting there today, if you're sitting next to your family, your husband or wife, join hands if we, as we pray today. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, it is a word to us today. It's a living word to every one of us. Lord, I don't know, Lord, what the condition of hearts are in this building here today. All the people that sit on these pews, all of us have different needs in our heart, different needs in our life. Some may be here today that 
The greatest need of their life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that be the case, Lord, I pray that you would grant them faith and repentance today to believe and know the gift of salvation found only in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I pray, God, today might be that day of salvation for them. Father, I pray for saints here today, brothers and sisters in Christ that have come. I pray, God, they would be encouraged in the Lord. Father, I know there's some here today that maybe are very discouraged. Maybe they're in a very, very deep valley in their life, and I pray, God, that you might come to them and wrap your arms around them and just show them again today just how much you love them. Father, I pray, God, that you might reach from heaven with your holy finger and go through every pew here today and touch every heart and every life. And, Father, that we would be a changed people because we came here today to hear the word of God. So, Father, help us to not uh, just have come, to hear only the word of God, to become to be doers of the word of God. So, Father, we pray together, and we want to thank you in advance for all you're going to do. For we pray, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And oh, God's church said, Amen. Amen. What well, it is. A wonderful living word to us today. As we turn to Genesis chapter 3, I think we could say, if we wanted to, that Genesis chapter 3 is a chapter about sin. There's probably no other chapter in the Bible that tells us more about sin and the consequences of sin. If we look through Genesis chapter 3, we see that there are six major consequences of sin that caused Adam and Eve to become Uh, not partner. I know yesterday the title of our conference was Partners in Paradise, but they became, because of sin, partners in perversion, we might say. And I want to mention these briefly as an introduction as we get into our message today. And we see if we go through the book of Genesis chapter 3, that chapter there, we see that first sin caused man to be cut off from God. It caused man to be cut off from God. Or we might say there is spiritual alienation. We also see in this chapter that sin caused man to be cut off from man. Or there is social alienation. We even see that as God comes to them and questions them of what they have done. And the husband blames the wife and the wife blames the husband. Amen. There is social alienation there because of sin. Sin also caused man to be cut off from himself. That is, man forgot who he was. There was psychological alienation, we might say, in that he lost his identity. His identity was in Christ. We talked about this a lot yesterday. And now he was in a search to find his identity, which only could be found really truly in God. But he would begin to look other places to find his lost identity. We might say also sin caused gender roles to be cursed. There is familial alienation. The roles of the husband and wife now were not to be what God had planned for them to be without sin. Now there was a curse upon the roles of the man and the role of the wife. Sin also caused the ground to be cursed. We might say there is vocational alienation. And there is now the world around us is cursed by sin. Even as we know in Genesis Uh, excuse me, in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says that a creation even groans, amen? And certainly it does because of sin. And we see that sin caused gender roles to be cursed too. That is a role of a male, the role of a female 
And so we see these different aspects. But lastly, sin caused man to be cut off from uh, nature, and that is to be creational alienation. And so we, I'm just giving you a summary of all the different ways that Genesis 3 is a chapter about sin. Perhaps there's no other greater chapter in the Bible that talks about sin. So I would stop here this morning and I would ask you a very, very important question that much of our nation and the world is confused about today. And that is, do you believe there is such a thing as sin? Now, the Bible clearly tells us that, but the question is, do you believe it? Let me say here today that many, if I would say, if not most people, do not. Sin is not a popular topic to talk about in the church today. Love is. Prosperity theology is. Whatever whatever we talk about in church, let's don't talk about sin. Let me just say here this morning, all the problems with man, all the problems with poverty, all the problems of abuse... Cruelty, drunkenness, divorce, gender confusion, transgender confusion, homosexuality, lying, stealing, and the problems in our nation, the problems all around the world are due to one thing, and that one thing is called sin. C.M. Jode was a British philosopher, and he was also an atheist. He was a member of what's called the Brain Trust. He lived in the early 20th century, He was an atheist, but he came to faith later in his life. And at the very end of his life, after he had come to faith, he wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. In it, he said this very fascinating thing. It is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disillusioned by the behavior of both the people and the nations and politicians and by the recurrent fact of war. Before coming to faith, he believed that man's problems were due to a lack of education. Man's problems were due to the right social policies and other things that man could change. But he realized near the end of his life, after he came to faith in Christ, that because he didn't believe in the doctrine of original sin, that all of man's social policies, all of everything man would try to do to make things right would never, ever work. Why? Because he didn't have the Bible's understanding, he says, of original sin of the depravity of man. Carl Menninger, a very, very mainstream psychiatrist who was a member of the Aspen Institute of Humanistic Studies, wrote a book in 1970s that really shocked a lot of people. And the title of the book was Whatever Became of Sin. In this book, he starts out like this. He calls for a revival of the conscious sense of guilt and repentance. To paraphrase, he says this. In short, I call for revival of sin. What would be the good of that, you ask? Why do we need more breast beaters? Why not a no-fault theology, no one to blame? Things just happen the way they do, alas. Here's why, he says. The assumption that there is sin implies both a possibility and an obligation for intervention. We want to help ourselves and others, hence sin is the only hopeful view. When evil appears around us and no one is responsible, no one is guilty, no moral questions are asked, 
then there is in short nothing to do, so we sink in despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the consequence of my proposal for revival of the consciousness of sin would not be more depression, but much less. Notice in this statement, and it jumped out at me when I read this, he says the assumption that there is sin implies both a possibility and an obligation for intervention. Possibility and obligation. Here's what he means. If someone says, I don't believe in sin, then two important things are true. Number one, you have no right to intervene. You have no right to stop somebody from doing what they feel is right to do regardless of how you feel about it. You have no right to intervene if you do not believe in such a thing as sin. For example, a husband is abusing his wife. You say, stop it. Don't you know it's wrong for you to abuse your wife? And they look back at you and say, who are you to tell me what's right? And who are you to tell me what's wrong? I don't really care what you think. What you're saying to them is there is such a thing as sin, but if you don't believe in sin, then you have no right to intervene in my life. Also, number two, you have no possibility of intervention. If you say that things just happen or this is just because of my genetic code or this is due to evolution, then folks, really, there is no hope for us. Amen? Meninger says very powerfully, if there is no such thing as sin, then we have neither the right to intervene nor really even the power to intervene. If things just happen because they happen, if there's no such thing as sin, you have neither the right nor the possibility to change anything. Now, this thinking is where victimhood comes from. If you don't believe in sin, you see Adam as the poor victim of the woman and the God who gave her to him. The modern version goes like this. God, you're responsible for my situation that left me so susceptible to sin, my upbringing, my abuse, my horrible parents, and all their influence over me. This is where many people live today in their life, believing they have no sin and are just victims of all the circumstances around them. It's no wonder, folks. It's no wonder there's rampant depression. There's no wonder there's rampant suicide today because people are looking for hope and they cannot find any hope. That's why Miniger says if we begin to look around and say these things are sin, this is sin, suddenly we get less depressed. Suddenly there is hope. You have the possibility of change. If you believe what you're doing is sinful and you also have the right to intervene into other people's lives and help them change, if what they're doing is sin, then there is hope. But let me stop here and say, and as much as Genesis chapter 3 is a book about sin, it's also a book about grace about the marvelous grace of a wonderful God. And we see in this book also, and this is a thrust of my message today, that there is hope. There is pardon in paradise, amen? amen. And we see partners in pardon as we go through this chapter, 
And as we close out this weekend, this morning, I want to share with you several ways that we see God's grace woven through this chapter that gives every one of us hope. First, we see God's grace shown in his presence. In verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, I want you to get the picture here. Man has disobeyed God. Amen? They have done what God... God gave man one prohibition. Do not eat of that tree. They ate of the tree. They disobeyed God. And God had something he could do. He knew, knew what I would do, probably what many of you would do. If somebody treated you wrong, did something wrong to you, hurt you, you would probably many times of your flesh say, forget them. I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. I gave you this wonderful paradise. I put you in this garden of Eden, an enclosed place of pleasure. I gave you everything and only commanded you to do one thing, simply obey me on one thing. And you didn't do it, forget you. I don't have anything to do with you anymore. But folks, I want to tell you, God did not do that. God came down into the wreckage of man's sin. He said, where are you? Of course, God knew where he was. He was hiding, amen? Because he had sinned against God. But I think if we're not careful, we don't... You know, if I said nothing else today, and I just shared this one point, it would be very profound. That wherever you are in your life, whatever's happening in your life, whatever sin you may be setting here that's a secret sin or a covered-up sin, something in your past that you've done, that God offers his grace to you. And he is today coming to you and saying, where are you? I want to have a conversation with you. Aren't you glad that God wants to have a conversation with us sinners? Amen? That he didn't just forget us. And he didn't just say, okay, you disobeyed me. You can spend eternity in hell. He didn't do that. It's a wonderful grace of God that there is forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. But not only was God's grace shown through his presence after man sinned, but also God's grace was shown in the curse on the serpent and Satan. Look at verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We see from these verses that the curse had two objects, really. The curse upon the serpent and the curse upon Satan, who controlled the serpent. Look first at the curse upon the serpent. The verse is not saying this is when the serpent lost its legs and started crawling on its belly. That's not what it's saying. This verse is, is very similar to where God talks about the rainbow in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 13. And he says this, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This verse is not saying this is when we started having rainbows, but from this point on, God says, when you see that rainbow, it's going to be a sign of my grace. 
Now, the same is true on the curse upon the serpent. It doesn't mean from now on you'll crawl on your belly, but from now on you will crawl on your belly, and notice what it says, and eat dust. Eating dust is a sign of judgment. Even today, you may have said this to someone in the past, or someone may have said it to you, you can eat my dust. You ever heard that before? Eat my dust. Here's what it means. What he's saying is when you see the serpent crawling on the ground, it's a sign of defeat and frustration. He says there will be seed of the serpent in verse 15. Who are these seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent are all the people who like the serpent, like Satan, try to put themselves in the place of God. One commentator aptly states, he says from now on, I want you to see that whenever you see a serpent, that's a sign of my curse and my judgment on anybody who tries to put themselves in the place of God, put themselves on the throne. You will eat dust all your life. You will be frustrated all your life. You will be empty all your life. Whenever we put something in our life in the place of God, there will be frustration, depression. There will be, listen, emptiness all your life. Because only God can fill that hole that's within you that was emptied out of you when you sinned against God. But we see the curse upon Satan too. In verse 15 he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is an astounding gospel prophecy. Amen. And it refers, the woman's offspring called her seed refers to Christ who will crush one day Satan's head. Hebrew scholar Jack Collins examined every word, use of the word seed when it means offspring and found that when the word is singular as it is in this verse here, it always denotes a specific descendant. And when it is an individual, the pronoun will be masculine. This understanding of seed is confirmed by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16 when he says this, Now the promise, promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Hallelujah. So here in Genesis 3.15, we have the prophecy of the cross when Satan would strike the hill of Christ, the suffering and death on the cross, but Christ would strike Satan's head through his death and glorious resurrection. It's amazing that we see paradise, paradise lost by man sinning against God, and God's grace is shown to us by the curse upon Satan that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will crush his head in the great work done on the cross and the resurrection from the grave. <laughs> Jesus understood this when he said in John 3, 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The command to look upon the uplifted serpent in Numbers 21, 9 was certainly a foreshadowing of looking to the crucified Christ for our salvation. But there's also more grace in this chapter. 
Let me just keep on going here. Grace shown in the curse to the woman. We see grace even shown in the curse that God gives to the woman. We see God's grace continue in judgments of the woman through childbearing and in marriage. Look first at childbearing. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now let me just say this. God created woman to find joy and pleasure and meaning, great meaning in motherhood. But now because of sin, she would experience pain in one of the most joyous parts of her life, that is, bearing children. And the pain was not limited to just the physical, but the word pain means painful toil and refers to also the emotional as well as the physical. Mothering now would be a source of painful labor. But also, we see what God says about the curse in marriage. In verse 16, at the end of verse 16, it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Where the woman was created by God in her divine role to submit and follow her husband, now she would desire not to submit and follow her husband, but to usurp his leadership and to control her husband. But her desire would not be met because her husband, that word rule is a very, very strong word rule. Her husband now, because of sin, would tend to not lovingly lead her, but be more of a dictator and a tyrant over her. Now, you might ask, where in the world? You're telling me the curses, but where do you see God's grace in these curses? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. (laughs) You know, God's grace shines through as marriage alone to the wife will never, ever satisfy her the way God meant for it to satisfy her in the original creation. Her mothering would be now a source of ongoing joy, but also ongoing pain. And because of this, she then, this will drive her seeking soul to God to find only what God can give. She'll find that marriage, even though it can be wonderful at times, can be very empty at times. She'll find that mothering can be such a joy at times, but it will be hard and it'll be a lot of toil and there'll be a lot of emotional pain involved with it too. And through this, you'll see that she desperately needs God. Is that right, women? So even in the curse, there's grace because it's driving her to see that only God can truly meet the needs of her heart. But we also see this grace shown in the curse to the man. Look at it with me in verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now because Adam, it says, because Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, it's a very interesting word, I mentioned this yesterday, This word, listen, actually, it's an idiom which means to obey because you obeyed the voice of your wife. And let me just stop here and say this. Satan is all about reversing the roles of a husband and wife. 
He's all about destroying your family. Everything is happening in our culture today. If you want to bring it back to a point of what is the main attack of the devil, it is destroy marriage. It is destroy your family, destroy your children. He hates your family. He hates the family unit that God made to be beautiful. And here we see because of Eve yielding, the woman yielding to Satan's temptation, the roles are switched here and the man listens to his wife, obeys his wife, obeys the voice of his wife. He abdicated his God-given headship. God cursed not man's, listen, not man's work, but he cursed the ground. The ground from which there had been a source of joy. When Adam was put into the garden, when he was told to dress and keep the garden, that was sweet labor. To Adam, He enjoyed that. God made him to enjoy that. But now this would become a source of ongoing pain. And this curse upon the ground was irrevocable. Nothing could ever change it. No repentance. Nothing would remove the curse upon the ground. Now man's labor upon the earth, listen, it would become futile. You men know what I'm talking about. You're going to work hard all month long, pay your bills, but you know what? You're going to start over again next month. You're going to go out and weed your garden, get all the weeds out of it, but you know what's going to happen next week? You're going to have to do it again. The ground is cursed because of sin. But even God's grace shines brightly in man's curse. Because apart from God, none of man's work, man's achievements, would ever satisfy man's heart. No matter if he's a teacher, some teachers here. No matter if he's a farmer, if he's an engineer, if he's a doctor, if he's a sports superstar, nothing would ever truly satisfy man's soul now except for God. All of man's work now would be covered with thorns and thistles. Solomon, the Bible says he's... He was the wisest man who ever lived. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4, he makes these statements. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I can, everything I'm doing, I've, I've gained all the wealth, I've got all the women, I've got everything. If you go in the book of Ecclesiastes, I've got it all. But what I need, it's all vain. I need God. The whole duty of man, he says in chapter 12, is to fear God and obey His commandments. And again, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul reminds us that both man and creation will groan until there is a final liberation from the curse at the end of the age. And like woman, nothing would satisfy man's soul but God Himself. This is God's grace on man as he's driven to search for what only God could give him, rest in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there even. We also see God's grace shown in Adam naming the woman. In Adam's naming of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, A man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam named his wife Eve, which means life. It also means life giver because she would become the mother of all the living. Adam named her mother of all the living because he understood the significance 
of God's word spoken to his wife. He understood and believed by faith that one of her offspring would crush the head of Satan. Adam's declaration was a shout of hope when he named her Eve. In naming his wife Eve, he was celebrating the survival of the human race and victory over death. The reformer Philip Melathian called Eve the seal of grace. But we also see God's grace and God's clothing of both man and woman. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Marcus Dodds, who was a 19th century Scottish preacher and also a scholar, said this, It is to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what men had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfailing tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have ever thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar, but for Adam, he recognized death as punishment for sin. And he had to learn that sin could not be covered by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, but only by pain and by blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action nor without expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. Adam and Eve would never have perceived that only through the shedding of blood could their sin be covered. God's provision of garments, of animal skins, was a tremendous act of grace and realization that only God's grace could cover their sin. Man's works, man's efforts could never cover their sin. You couldn't take some leaves and cover it up. Man today is still trying to do that, amen? We try to do everything we can to say, I can work my way to God. I'm better than you are. I can have good works that will earn my way to heaven. But God says, no, it's only by the shedding of blood of the perfect one who is called Jesus Christ. Amen. And we see this pictured in Matthew twenty-two eleven in the parable of the wedding banquet where Jesus says these words. And when the king came to see the guest, he saw there was a man which had not a wedding garment. Also in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 and verse 22, when it says, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best, what church? Robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Unfortunately, again, man throughout the ages, even up to today, tries to cover up their sin with their own futile works, which can never save them. But God's action as we see covering them with the skins of these animals as a foreshadowing of the ultimate sovereign provision for sin, God's Son, Jesus Christ. And lastly, we see God's grace shown through their exile from the garden. In verse 22 it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he, he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now listen, even though Adam and Eve's bodies were physically alive, 
They were spiritually dead. Ken Hughes says, as residents of the garden, they could have eaten of the tree of life and perpetuated their bodily existence indefinitely. Thus the garden would have become hell on earth, populated with the undying dead, forever living and forever dead. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. What a, what a curse that would have been upon man if God not, had not have driven him out of the garden. Adam and Eve were exiled forever from the garden. And even though this appears terrible to us, it was an act, a marvelous act of God's grace. Since they had breathed the air of God's presence, they would now be short of spiritual breath. Therefore, now they would never be able to get enough of God. The whole Bible, from the Garden of Eden until the Holy City, pictured in Revelations 21 and 22, are a story of God's marvelous grace. For Adam and Eve and us, who with them are partakers in this perversion of sin, there's no going back to the garden. But through Christ, the second Adam, these realities lie ahead of us as seen in these passages I want to share with you in closing from Revelations. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 and 3, And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In verse 22, it continues, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its light lamp is the Lamb. Then the angel Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer, no longer will there be anything accursed, praise God but the throne of God and the Lamb will be, be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. All of mankind who inherited the sin of Adam and Eve, who were partners in perversion, could now be pardoned through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I look around this auditorium, and I've been, like I said, coming here a long time. I see, I should say I don't see some people that I dearly loved I saw 20 years ago. But what I know for a fact is the ones who have passed away, they're with God. And I know one day there's going to be a great reuniting with all of our loved ones that have passed before us and all of us who will pass on if Christ tarries and does not return. As I said to begin with, in the Word of God, we see the true story of the world. 
This is not man's story. It's not a made-up story. This is a true story. Our world can give you all kind of false stories, false hopes, but this is where true hope is found. As much as Genesis 3 is a book that tells us all about sin, it is also a book that tells us all about grace. And God's grace is here for you. And I don't know where you are today in your life. I don't know if you came to this building and you don't know Christ. You haven't accepted the gift of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. It's my prayer today that God's Holy Spirit would move upon your heart and He would grant you the faith to believe and repentance so that you could become a child of God. And I don't know where you are in your marriage here today, but wherever you are, if you're in a valley, I want to tell you, there is grace, there is hope. If you'll bring that marriage back to Christ. Wherever you are in your individual life, if you're single here today, you're living by yourself and you're lonely, there's grace for you today. God loves you. And he's calling out today, even as he did to Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you in your life right now? What's happened? I'm here for you. Will you accept his invitation? Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for your wonderful living word to us, your revelation to us. Lord, help us to never, ever get over how privileged we are to have the Word of God. Father, I pray, God, today that saints have been encouraged by the Word of God, that we have been reminded of the marvelous grace of God shown to us. You've shown it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And God, we are so thankful and so blessed. I pray, God, that right now that you might just give a special hug from your Holy Spirit to those here today that are hurting, those here today that are just wondering what to do next, for those who maybe have lost a loved one, and Father, their heart aches because they miss them. Father, for those who may be here today and they're in a real valley in their marriage relationship and and they really need hope that there is the possibility of healing and reconciliation. And I pray, God, today that you would show them that there definitely is. That hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen. And Father, I pray, oh God, grant, I pray salvation to those who may be in this building today that are lost without Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you'd move upon their heart and you would gloriously save them. So we thank you and praise you for your word. And we thank you in advance for all that you're about to do in the lives of your people and the lives of those who may be here today that are lost and lives that may be listening by live stream that are drawn to Christ. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God is good, amen? amen. I want to mention a few of the uh, books in the back and then I'm going to step down so we can have our communion. But couple of the books that I highly recommended yesterday, and I just want to recommend again today, The God You Can Know. And this is an awesome little book. 
And uh, I know we've been, we've been helping, we've taken a married couple that's having problems through this book, but I'm taking a man that's really struggling through this book and has been such an encouragement to them. This is a great little book. Check it out. Inexpressible is a book about God's love, the word hesed that's woven through the Old Testament that's translated everlasting love, covenant love. Uh, many different expressions of that word hesed, uh, loving kindness in the Word of God. And Michael Card does a wonderful job at going through it and talking about all those instances and, and weaving that together. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Purpose of Man, I know I've recommended that many times when I've been here by A.W. Tozer, and it's a great, great book, one of my favorites uh, to worship God. The Loving Life, uh, we've recommended it before. If you don't have this book, I highly, highly recommend it to you. Uh, on the book of Ruth and how we can live a loving life that's a reflection of the love of Jesus Christ, how we can love those that aren't so easy to love sometimes. And it may be some people visiting you over the holidays that are even family, that uh, you love them, but they're not easy to love. You know what I mean? Some, some of you know what I mean about that. And I, I didn't say this yesterday, but the book there on the right, and I just want to take a minute, Five Lives of Our Anti-Christian Age by Rosaria Butterfield, her newest work, I can't speak highly enough about that. Every family needs to get this book and read it. Based on the culture and time that we live in today, Rosaria Butterfield, I know y'all are probably familiar with her from some of the things. I think y'all watched a YouTube video of her. But this is a tremendously helpful book in understanding and, and, uh, about what's happening in our culture, but not only that, but how to speak the truth in love to those that are enslaved to a lot of sin uh, and sinful lifestyle. I highly recommend it. It's normally $30. If you want to get it today, I can give it to you for $22. That'll give you $8 off. So that I just highly recommend that. We got some of those back there. Go ahead, babies. Anything else I've got there? Okay. I just want to mention, I know I've mentioned Gospel Primer many times, but Debbie has a brand new book, Don't Awaken Love Until It Pleases, and uh, that was co-authored with another lady, Her Burden, to try to help mothers uh, talk with their daughters about sex and how beautiful sex is from a young age, from the time they're small all the way up to the time they get married. And so how to have that conversation with her, very biblically based, very helpful. I don't know of another book like that that's out there. So you might want to check that out. And if you have a daughter, a granddaughter, someone you want to give that to that has children, uh, that has daughters, you might want to get that for them. Well, God bless you. Thank you again for having us today. We'll be in the back, and if you've got any questions, we can help you with anything at all, then see us in the back after the service. We love you. God bless you. Amen. Well, as the uh, servers come forward.